Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir, and each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad, All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, to this new episode of the Bad, All About Crime podcast. My name is Catherine Dupoulou-Menager, and I'm the Artistic Director of Bad Sydney. This is a very special episode, um, as it's a recording of our episode for Lismore Library. You'll all remember the appalling floods in Lismore and indeed throughout New South Wales and into Queensland this year. But what caught my my, uh, imagination and my attention vividly was a picture that was posted all over social media of books being thrown out of the window at Lismore Library and just piling up on the ground outside. Enough to break anybody's heart, really, certainly a book lover's heart. And that inspired us to try to do something to raise some money for Lismore to buy books, Lismore Library to buy books, or anything else that they need. Um, we appealed to our wonderful uh, crime writers and three of Australia's best crime writers, Candice Fox, Michael Robotham and Chris Hammer, agreed to join us to talk books for Lismore Library. You're going to hear them in conversation with Kate Evans from the Bookshelf on Radio National, talking about libraries, books, and indeed how to set a crime in a library. So that shouldn't give us any ideas, of course. And also joining us from Lismore on the evening was the acting regional library manager, Lucy Kingsley, who tells a rather grim story of how they just finished a a recovering from previous floods. The library was new, it was wonderful, and they were hit by not one but two floods and the water got higher and higher. I hope you really enjoy listening to them. Welcome. Thank you for joining us both at at home on Zoom and um, in the room to raise funds for the Lismore Library, which we all know has been very badly affected by the recent floods. My name is Catherine Dupoulou-Menager and I'm the Artistic Director of Bad Sydney. I was talking to one of um, a colleague on the board and she said, oh, we should do something, you know. So we did and here we are. We've raised, I think, close to $15,000, which is really good. Last night, we were talking to the fabulous, or Sue Turnbull was talking to the fabulous um, English crime writer, Linda LaPlante, and halfway through the, the session with her, I got this message from one of her staff saying, Linda's going to donate. How does she do it? So that was just fantastic and really incredibly kind. Um, libraries, of course, are all about the stories they contain, and we're going to have an evening of stories. You may actually have a nice surprise. But I'd like to acknowledge before we start that we are on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, great storytellers themselves. We acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. I'd like to thank the State Library of New South Wales for making the event tonight at such possible, at such short notice, and with such goodwill, it's not been easy, actually. <laughs> Thank you so much to Marcelo Flaxbard, particularly, and to his team for doing everything they could to make this happen. In a few moments, we'll cross to Lismore. Well, I hope we'll cross to Lismore. 
uh, where Lucy Kinsley, who is the acting regional library manager, is going to speak to us briefly about what's happening at their end after their second flood. She told me this morning that they've got water in the library again. Then I'll hand over to Kate Evans from the ABC, uh, ABC Radio National's The Bookshelf, who will talk to three of Australia's best crime writers. And in order of where they're sitting, not in any other order, Candice Fox, Michael Robotham and Chris Hammer, thank you. Um, so we're going to talk crimes, we're going to talk libraries, but now we're going to hand over to Lucy. Hi, thank you. And I have to say thank you for everybody involved in this whole project. It's been absolutely wonderful. And the response from across Australia has been overwhelming. So thank you to everybody. As you know, we were inundated to 14 metres, well, literally four weeks ago. And today we have just started cleaning out again. This time we water came into the ground floor to waist height, so we're starting to clean out again. Over 29,000 books were written, thrown out the windows at Lismore Library, and at the moment we are starting to find out how many were destroyed in people's houses and what you see on television has no relationship to what it actually is like to live in Lismore at the moment. You just drive through streets where houses have had all their walls removed, the windows are open, some houses have um, tape around them. It means that they are damaged beyond repair. The community is coming together and but it's just overwhelming, just overwhelming. It's hard to understand and now we've been hit again. But... It's community events like this and that are raising the um, enthusiasm, perhaps not the right word, but the coming together of the community to, to build, to develop, to grow um, and look at other options on how we will step forward. And all I can say is thank you again for attending this, this special event. Thank you to the authors. So generous of you to give your time, the State Library, to bad crime. Thank you for thinking of us. Um, it's just been an experience that I hope I never have to repeat again, and that's all I can say. But, but thank you again, and so looking forward to hearing this event. So over to you. Thank you. And thank you very much, Lucy, because like everyone here, I've also been haunted by that image of the ruined books in front of the Lismore Library and a community impacted so terribly by these deluges. And, of course, as we know, it's happened again this week. So in solidarity, this one small gesture initiated by Bad, Crime, Bad Writers Festival. So welcome, everybody, again, both in this room here at the State Library of New South Wales and online. As Catherine said, my name's Kate Evans. I present a weekly books program on ABC Radio National, The Bookshelf, and I'm delighted to be here with these three crime writers, all of whom write both series and standalone novels, all of whom have terribly twisted imaginations, and all of whom include levity and humour, as well as suspense, mystery, blood and drama in a work. And actually thinking of suspense, one thing that always gets me at events like this is the occasional phone that goes off. So before we get too much into it, just double check that you put your phone on silent um, because you never know, you might feature in a library murder should your phone go off at the wrong time. 
But I'd like us all to imagine a body or two in a library or think about what it means that a detective might enter a library because that happens in an awful lot of detective fiction. Um, all the way back to Noir and Raymond Chandler, there are reasons why libraries are important as repositories of knowledge, of local history. They play so many different roles, and I'd like to speculate they might also be quite good venues for imagining fictional crime, and we might try to work something out as a group. But um, just to give a bit more detail about the people before you, Candace Fox writes series as well as standalones. She also collaborates with American writer James Patterson. Her novels include Eden, Gathering Dark and Redemption Point and Crimson Lake, which is on screen right now as Tropo on ABC iView, which I hope you've all seen. Hello, Candice. Oh, hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Michael Robotham's novels include the Joe O'Loughlin series, When She Was Good, and the Evie series, as well as standalones, including his latest, When You Are Mine. His next book is coming out in June, Lying Beside You, which uh, returns to Evie and Cormac. Hello, Michael. Hi, thanks, Kate. And Chris Hammer's books include Scrubland, Trust, and Treasure and Dirt. Hi, Chris. Hello, how lovely to be here. And although we are here to have some lighthearted fun and to speculate on things in the crime fiction world, you know, there's a pretty serious reason that we're here as well. So I wonder if we could start by thinking about floods. And Chris Hammer, you've also written nonfiction. You've written about rivers. You've written a book about the Murray-Darling Basin. So I wonder what that knowledge means to you as you've observed these floods over the last month. There's... There's different types of floods in Australia. The floods out west, particularly the ones out in Queensland on the outside rivers like the Paru are fantastic because you get a month's notice that rains up in the mountains, but the land gets so flat, the flood moves so slowly that you can walk in front of it. And up there, they're cause a real celebration. The graziers will go and buy more stock, so they've got them there because they know that the flood water's coming and there'll be feed and, and whatever. So floods aren't always bad, um, and in those rivers that can be very healthy down in the South Australia. They're really helpful for flushing the salt out and trying and getting the Murray, the mouth of the Murray River open. Um, but these floods, the ones, um, uh, the ones there, Lismore. Uh, you know, I have a, uh, a nephew who lives in Lisbon and he's been communicating, just he's a school teacher there, and just, you know, how dramatic the impact on the community's been. Um, a place that's actually used to flooding, but, you know, nothing like this. Someone commented the other day, wow, that's a one in 500-year flood, you know, twice in a month. <laughs> uh, it's, I just want to say it's interesting Sort of really, when it comes to floods, I've got this strange sort of connection because my dad is from Lismore and my mum was from Kyogle and my grandparents on my father's side were in Lismore. I spent my childhood going there and they were in a flood area right in the centre of town and periodically their entire bottom floor would flood and, and we couldn't get in to see them. And I was born in Casino and from there we moved to Gundagai now, Gundagai is the scene of the worst, most deadly flood in Australian history in, in the 1870s, I think it was. Um, 
And I saw the ABC did a piece to, to camera um, last week where they sent someone to, to Gundagai because after that flood, Gundagai was rebuilt on the hills surrounding the floodplain in north and south Gundagai. And they were speculating whether that was potentially what might happen to happen in somewhere like Lismore that, you know, would they look at actually rebuilding the town? Um, but, yeah, just those two places. And, I, and I, my childhood was dominated by, by Lismore and Gundagai. It's where I spent all my childhood. Well, you, you jumped the gun on my question there because I was going to ask you about Gundagai because um, I knew you had that connection. But, of course, that's also that flood is the story that features in Anita Heiss's novel, mm. uh, Billy Yaradungalung Duray. And so that was an interesting point of connection across those floods yeah no absolutely i mean that was uh i mean that's a beautiful book actually in terms of you know and um because the indigenous people saved so many lives that night the, the death toll which ran into the 70s would have been so much higher and um it's funny i mean within gundagai it's that that flood even though i mean i was there in the in the in the mid 1960s and that flood still was the town. I mean, it just passed down from family to family, stories of that flood. And and um, and you could still see on the floodplain where they had the showground and the golf course, you could still see the remnants of buildings that were destroyed um, in that flood. Yeah, I mean, these these events have shaped the landscape of Australia and then in, in buildings and then all around Australia there are flood marks but what's it meant to you Candace watching these events whenever you're facing a natural disaster I think um it's 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 kind of an equalizer it, it's coming through the door you've got to pick up everything you have and leave and and there's a moment when you're watching this on the tv when you think I'm going to respond to that or not you know how much do I care about that uh do I know those people do I not know those people how much heart that I have um and I I think that that's it's really wonderful when you see a bunch of people getting together and saying, that's not okay, I'm going to help with that um, because the world is so full of disaster, you know, uh, and at the moment, the last few years I've felt to myself you get this fatigue um, of how much badness there is out there. Um, but Lismore has attracted so much love for what it's it's going through right now. Um, I think that's, that's, that's the lovelier side of what a terrible what a terrible event this is. Well, let, let's focus then on something that is more positive but that is also an equaliser in a way and that is the role of libraries because they're communal and civic spaces. Um, I mean, here we are in the State Library, a place where you see researchers and homeless people and school children um, and all using these spaces. But because we're here, you know, talking about fiction and the imagination, uh, I'm really struck by how often libraries appear in fiction. Yeah. There's a lot of it in fantasy fiction. There's a lot of flying books and, you know, libraries where knowledge is sort of manifest through, you know, really inventive ways. There's a lot of it in literary fiction. There's a lot of it in crime novels, particularly pre-internet, where detectives like, I mean, I know Harry Bosch has done it and Kinsey Milhone's done it and Sarah Paretsky's done it. They have to go into the local studies collection yeah. at the library yeah. to try to track back a story. But I'm curious about the role of libraries in your own lives. Chris Hammer, what have libraries meant to you? Oh, oh as a child, I'd say I'm the youngest of three, every week we would go to the library 
to the to the ACT Central Library. I grew, grew up in Canberra. There was a library at school, and there was even strangely a small library across the road from the school. Um, and they were all, as they were in those days, brilliantly stocked, wonderful books, just an escape, an imagination, and it was always a treat. I mean, you know, mum would never, if it was the swimming pool or the library, we were in the car before she was. Other stuff, not so much, you know. <laughs> but, um, oh, yeah, I, absolutely essential. Really, I mean, these big libraries like this are beautiful. You know, I live in Canberra, so you have the National Library and you've got a series of wonderful libraries at the ANU. But, you know, out in some country towns where you don't have a bookstore, the library is absolutely central and they're, 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 a, they're a social hub. You know, it's where you get your book clubs, it's where people where people go to get out of the heat, <laughs> where people go to use the internet because the internet's often not very good. Um, you know, a lot of uh, elderly people, it's like a social hub for the town. They're, they're really important part of the fabric of this country, I feel. And really important for, like, for kids who don't have anywhere to do their homework or to study at home. But, Michael, what have life oh, meant to you? I mean, Gundagai had so few people. I mean, I, we didn't have a cinema um, so was, the nearest one was in Wagga. Uh, the nearest drive-in was like, it was 50 miles to a drive-in or a cinema. Um, the one thing Gundagai did have, you know, for a population of 900 was six pubs and three clubs. Um, but the library, I mean, I'm one of four, and mum and dad couldn't afford um, to buy books and there was no bookshop in town. So the library was, it was I mean, it was the place. Um, and... Um, I sort of, I'll tell you a little story about, you know, I mean, my mother has always been this amazing sort of, you know, she took us along and she still uses the library. And when I, when I wrote my, my very first novel, you know, got sold around the world on a part manuscript and I was so excited it was going to be, you know, um, published around the world and I sent my mother an advanced reading copy um, and I waited and I waited and I waited and I heard nothing. And I phoned her and said, Mum, did you get a chance to perhaps look at that book, the one with my name in huge, huge type on the front? And she said, oh, dear, I had three library books to get through. Did you want me to read your one first? And uh, I then said, no, Mum, honestly, when you get to it, that's fine. I told that story at Cost Harbour Library. That's where we were living at the time. And my mother was sort of slid under her seat. And then the librarian came out and gave her a friend of the library award <laughs> at the end of the evening because any mother that would read library books before her son's first novel was truly a friend of the library. Just to finish that story, I, when I, again, I waited weeks and I finally, I thought, I, I, I said, you must have read it by now. And I, and I found her and said, Mum, the book. Oh, yes, I finished. What did you think? It took me a while to get into, but then I did. I put that on my website underneath the Washington Post and the New York Times reviews. Author's mother. Took me a while to get into, but then I did. I might have to invite her on the bookshelf as a reviewer. We do like people to be, you know, firm in their opinion. Um, Candace, libraries. The library for me was a refuge from the mean girls because I was very unpopular in high school. Um, I'm one of six and then my mum fostered 155 kids as I was growing up. 
So we were a very freaky family. I was really, you know, riddled with hair lice and very grungy and goth and just not very popular at all. So I would escape to the library and I would write um, you know, and writing and saving my work on the computer uh, at the library meant it was safe from my brothers, uh, my writing. Um, so, yeah, but the librarian hated me initially because I'm a two-finger typist, which, and I, you know, uh, I'm, I've written 15 novels or something and, and I'm still so two, yeah, two-finger. Um, and I, I hammer the keys really hard and she really hated she hated that. She's a terrifying woman as well. Um, but, you know, what happened is I eventually was borrowing, I was borrowing a book and I saw, you know, I wasn't particularly well-read at that age and it, it, it was Little Women and I was like, oh, what's this? You know, I'm a little woman. I guess I'll, you know, borrow this. And she was so impressed. She was like, oh. Oh, here we go! Oh, you're getting into the classics, and and uh, and so just every week I would borrow something really impressive. I wasn't reading them, <laughs> I'd go in there and I'd be like, "Oh yeah," you know. Um, just, I just just borrowed a series of, and they were getting thicker and thicker and thicker, and and then she asked me what I thought of one of them, and I just choked, and um, yeah, just it, 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 the relationship ended really badly, but I. I you I did, love that. You didn't library. kill her, did you? No, no, I went out and I made friends and I stopped hanging out in the library. And we got a home computer as well. So. I when I went to high school, because I, I had to go to little country high schools where my dad was teaching. So you can imagine oh. that I was bullied and beaten up. And, and so I hid in the library as well. Yeah. But my li librarian, uh, Mrs. Fitzpatrick, um, I, 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 I discovered Lord of the Rings and, and I borrowed it so often and reread it so often that she forbade me ever taking it out again because <laughs> she said some other child should have the yeah. right to say it. So I took to hiding it in the library and coming in every recess and lunchtime to escape the bullies so I could read this book. And she caught me and I thought, oh, I'm in big trouble here. And she gave me the book. Aww. I still have it at home, this beaten up copy. And she said, you've earned this. And she gave me, gave me a copy uh, of the book to take home. And it's still when people say, what's... What book are you most proud of? It's, and I say it's the book, the first book I ever earned, and it's Lord of the Rings. It's held together with gaffer tape. <laughs> I built up one and a half thousand dollars worth of library fines at the University. Library of fines. Yeah, one, the University of Can New you South have Wales. <laughs> library. I borrowed one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And there, you know, you got to bring that book back. You got to bring it back. Emails were going to an account that I never checked. And then they finally called me and they said, you've got this library fine. And I was like, how much is it? <laughs> it's one and a half thousand dollars. <laughs> so I had to go in there. I had to find the book inside my apartment. And I had to go in there and be like, please, <laughs> here it is. And I'll even buy you another new copy. Yeah. They, they forgave me. They forgave me the money. Have any of you already set a part of one of your novels in a library? Uh, yeah, in, I've sort of forgotten about this, but, yeah, in Silver, Martin is researching what had happened to his family back when he was a kid, and so he goes into the library um, and the town up on the, uh, up on the hill and gets into the newspaper archives. Um, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't realised, and I suspect there might be another one. Oh, no, no, in Trust, this state library, there's a scene set... Not here, but, but in the other building, in, the, in like the cafe in the reading room downstairs. Yes. It's interesting how often um, yes. 
the detectives do have to go in and yeah. find something from the past because so much crime fiction presents something in the present and then some deep mystery in the past. And often it's a library that holds that repository, yeah. doesn't it? I, I, this is just talking about, you know, the things that like I discovered Trove, which I believe is associated with the, the National Library yeah, yeah, as well yeah. as all the libraries perhaps. Yeah. Oh, yes. uh, when I bought my first house, I started looking through those archives for um, my house and the street and had anything ever interesting ever happened in the street. Um, and in the 50s, in my street, uh, a fireball had descended from the sky. It was this tiny little news article like this. A fireball descended from the sky and hit a man and then he was a, he was able to crawl to someone's household where he was taken in for two days and he was sort of semi-conscious saying, oh, it's so bright. And all the women in the street, you know, sort of got the vapours or whatever and had to go to bed because of this incident. <laughs> it was this tiny little article like this and I thought, where are you ever going to find that? You know, accepting it. Only a crime writer life. could take a tiny little article like that and spin it into that. <laughs> it's all of the little, uh, I remember him going, it's so bright. Ah. And then an automobile had hit a horse and cart. And that indeed is the pleasure of archival research. And I yeah. know, Michael, that one of your novels um, came from a tiny newspaper clipping. Yeah, it was two, two paragraphs in the Herald and I think it was March the 20th, 1985, I read the article. And a guy had served two life sentences and um, escaped the day before he was due to be released. And then th I did a bit of research and discovered that a year earlier he'd, he was due to be released and he'd escaped. And a day later he gave himself up and he was sentenced to another year's imprisonment because he he served 30-something years for these two murders and um, he was due to be released again and he escaped and he's never been seen since. No one bothered looking for him because they figured he'll be back tomorrow. You know, he's, he's Australia's least most wanted criminal because he had become a model prisoner by the time, after 30-odd years, he wasn't a danger to anyone. But he's never been, never been found. And, um, but I just used that as the seed of an idea. Um, but, uh, you know. When I was a, a student up at, um, at Bathurst, um, where my writing teacher was one Peter Temple, um, there was a guy who got so drunk, he thought he was climbing into one of the student residences, but was actually trying to climb over the wall into, into Bathurst Maximum Security <laughs> Prison. And I always thought that would be a good idea for a crime novel. Unfortunately, Trent Dalton got there first. <laughs> now, we could, we could easily spend the next half hour talking about the sort of incidental ideas that you would find by doing research in a library mm. but I'd rather place us more literally in a library there's actually lots of titles that include crimes that happen in libraries but if and and this is where I'm not thinking of a collaborative work thinking of you each as three individual crime writers given the way that you write the style that you write in Candice, if you were to include a library in the type of fiction that you <laughs> write, yeah. um, what would it be for? I mean, would it be the building? Would it be somebody who works there? How would you incorporate? I see. I've been thinking about this, yeah, because the novel I've just finished, I've just finished a draft and sent it away, you know, last week. 
And the the thing, the question I was asking myself when I started that novel was, what could you hold hostage that is not a person? You know, um, and and because I was thinking of uh, T.J. Newman's book Falling, uh, where a plane is taken over. Um, you know, and and for this novel that I've just written, um, it's a forensics lab. They they hold up the forensics lab. So I was thinking, what could you hold up in a library and make people do things? So I asked, um, I, I asked the, the director of the library just before, what is the most valuable book that is in this library? Captain, Cook, Captain Cook's written journal. And he estimated, he estimated $60 million. Anyway, I, I, I think to myself, you know, what could I do if I got hold of that or if I was the, in the room with that journal? Like if I said to him, burn that journal or I'll shoot you in the kneecap. What would he do? You know, um, and if it's if it's you see, he's gone. I know. <laughs> That's why I'm talking about to, him like this. <laughs> he's gone to make sure the book's okay. All oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or if you stole it, how would you move? How would you move a book like that? Um, you know, but yeah, being inside the library, you know, because you don't think about it, you come in and you leave it. But there are ten floors. There are ten floors underneath this with really rare stuff that's completely locked up. You can't just wander around in there. But if you did get in there, what could you do? What could you make people do, particularly diehard book people like that who, who make their whole lives about libraries? If I said to him, burn that book, would he, oh, there he is. <laughs> what do you do it? What do you do it? Candace is writing a novel in which the, the sort of uh, the point of friction is the Cook Corner Journal. She's somehow got somebody right there. Are you going to be, you know? I asked the question, if I, if I said to you this $60 million Captain Cook original handwritten journal, if I said to you, burn it or I'll shoot you in the kneecap, what, what do you say? What would you do? <laughs> <laughs> you would? <laughs> See, I, I love that. I love that. That's a, that's a question that I, yeah, that it's I a, would ask. And would a, would a reader believe that? He looks like he's got dodgy knees anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, just, I'm an just old for, man. I've got nothing to lose. Just, just for people on Zoom, the answer was he'd take the bullet. Yeah, <laughs> he'd, take, he'd take the bullet for the book. See, and, and you obviously have a love of books, you know. So. But I'm also imagining, I mean, I think there's all too much um, crime fiction or perhaps filmed versions where you end up in, you know, like creepy playgrounds or something. Whereas, you know, what's underneath this library? There are labs to conserve yeah. books and artefacts. There are photography, you know, labs. There are compactuses. There are all sorts of spaces behind the scenes in libraries that might make quite good settings for crime it's a, There's also, you know, national security. I, I started a PhD and I had to give it up because of the novels and part of it was on, uh, 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 so I have three quarters, I'm three quarters of a doctor. Um, uh, I'll take it. Anyway. Can you I fix was, his knee? I was, <laughs> <laughs> my, my focus was on banned books and there are actually only two books completely banned in this country. There are levels of, of banning and restriction and importation, but there's two that are outright banned. And they're by this guy named Abdul Azam, and they were banned in 2005 after the um, the, the London bombings. Um, anyway, they're completely banned, and they still are completely banned. And if you want to legit read one of those, 
you know, you can download them, but then you're on a list somewhere probably and they're going to have people coming through your windows. Um, it, you have to go to the University of Melbourne. You have to apply and go down to the University of Melbourne and go in a room and they don't let you have a phone, no laptops, anything, uh, no pencils, nothing, and you have to be in a secure room and you just you just read them. And so I went there and I did that and, and, and yeah, that's it's national security libraries, you know. They, so, they take care of that kind of thing. So it feels like we're upping the stakes here. If, we're, if the book that Candace is reading that is, you know, absolutely in her style. We've got um, tension, we've got mystery, we've got some violence and, you know, there's a potential for political, um, you know, conspiracies to ramp up. So that's one version of a book in a library. Michael Robotham, what are you going to do? Uh, look, I don't... Uh, Stephen King has always been a really great supporter of mine and, and I, I don't sort of write horror but I always remember, one of the things I always remember about crime, like people imagine that we as crime writers, because we write about such dark subjects, that we, we you know, double lock our doors at night and have extra security because we think the world is full of serial killers or people are going to snatch our children out of prams at any moment. Um, and I'm certainly not like that. I mean, I'm, I, I know exactly what the crime figures are in terms of violent crime per head of population there's less of it now than there was 20 years ago you know the only thing that's probably more dangerous is a child riding a bike on a road um but i do know that there are more serial killers on the shelves in the library here than have ever existed in all of human history there are more murderers on the shelves here and more murders have been committed i mean I mean, I personally have killed at least 38 people, you know, uh, in my writing career, and I'm, you know, I'd have to dig up the bodies to do a proper count, you know. And so, you know, it's, it's I, I think if I was going to write something, and I just like, I know the way Stephen King would handle it, he'd just talk about what would happen in a library of this size late at night if some of those killers in those books suddenly could walk again. You know, I mean, I'd be more interested in exploring that sort of idea. So escaping from the bookshelves. What about you, Chris Hamill? Well, I wouldn't say this is typical of my style, but I was thinking a killer book, you know, a book that if you read, it puts your life in danger. So the idea I had, I've thought this through. I mean, I've got the whole plot. <laughs> You're in a, a small country town. Uh, let's say an outback town because they're popular. Just <laughs> <laughs> record. Uh, and um, there wouldn't be a secret in a country town, would there? Oh uh, yeah. Oh, oh, Dave. No, no, no. What happens is that people start getting killed, and the local police have no idea. But then the very astute, brilliant librarian at the local library, uh, let's call her Kate. <laughs> Yeah, let's. Works out that all the victims are all members of the library. So she races to the police and, and tells them, and the police go, say, it's an outback town. Everyone's a member of the library. There's nothing else to do. <laughs> Kate Undertow goes back and finds that all the victims are not only members of the library, but they're members of the Book of the Month Club, and they've all been reading the same book by struggling, struggling local crime writer, Candace Robotham. Because <laughs> we got so, married. So again, again, Kate goes to the police and the police go, oh, you might be onto something here. 
but there's 100 members of that club. Why have these five been killed? Kate goes back to the library. It's late at night. She's online and she cracks it. Only these five have dared to give Candace Robotham a one-star review on Goodreads. Oh, wow. I can see it. Yes. And, and at that moment, she realised that she too was just given a one-star review. So then the knife-wielding author comes through and fortunately the police are there just in time and it all ends happily except there is, there is a postscript. As Candace Robotham is being sentenced for the murder of these five reviewers, um, the judge says, do you have any remorse? Is there some contrition here? To which the author goes, well, hell no. Thanks to the publicity, I'm now the number one best-selling author in Australia. And the only people who were harmed were people who gave crime writers one-star reviews on Goodreads. I, I thought the postscript was going to be sitting in the back of the courtroom taking notes to write a non-fiction bestseller was an author called Chris Hammer. <laughs> but I think there's more that we can do with this because, you know, here we have three terrific crime writers. We have potential sites all around the country if we imagine a library somewhere. And so this is your chance to nut out a collaborative novel now, Candice, you've written collaborative novels. I have, yeah, with and James I have Patterson. with James Patterson. Well, look, the, our relationship, James and I, he's the number one best-selling author of all time. Um, you know, he has Guinness World Records for in that kind of thing. And 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 our relationship works so well because I think from the very moment we started working together, we were both, you know, 100% clear on who's in charge, which is me, obviously. <laughs> so... I think if we can just agree on that. Okay, you're in charge. <laughs> but do you start with a um, with a site? Do you start with a with characters? Do you start yeah. with a body? Where do you want to start? You know, with Jim and I, we start with what interests you right now. What's interesting you right now? You know, like I've got a real thing about Conan at the moment because I watched the Tinder swindler and and all of that, and I'm just love fraud. I'm very interested in Conan, but I mean. I'm asking you to, as my collaborators and me being in charge, what is what's really well, interesting I mean, you? Right that's now? a great, great problem because I, I don't, I don't write. A, I don't never written collaborative. And B, I don't plot at all. So, oh. um, and so, so, where do you start? I start with a man escapes from jail the day before he's due to be released. Why would that happen? And I just said, oh, well, let's have him escape and see what happens. So I write an escape and I just see where it goes. Well, so why would someone break it? Like start with a question then. Why would someone break into a library? <laughs> Steal a $60 million <laughs> Captain Cook. Okay, I, why I, would somebody break I would into think that they'd be a library? I think they'd be some sort of con artist. Um, a con artist. Yes. Who's left something behind in a book in the library that will reveal his... <laughs> the combination to the safe. <laughs> what about, I mean, I, I said before, and it was only partly joking, that one of the conventions of crime fiction is to have a crime in the present that connects to the oh, past. Yeah. Is that something that you think is central to crime fiction, that there should be something in the present and something in the past? I could, there are lots of books that are written that, that way, it's, there's no hard and fast rule. So about you don't have to have to an old library. 
The one that you asked the question before, have you ever done the library, the the detective sitting in, and I have done that, and, and that was Eden, and part of that is 60s King's Cross and present. So it is exactly that. So it's it's um, it's just fun to do. It's fun to imagine. And uh, I have a, a very long convoluted story about six months ago my mother revealed to me that she had an encounter with a serial killer. Um, I was like, I'm sorry, Mum, for the last eight years I've been trying to be the foremost crime writer in this country. Could you have possibly mentioned that <laughs> at some point? Um, but I might be doing a podcast um, on that. It's in the works. And part of that involves going and poring over the microfilms and looking and reading the old articles and that kind of stuff. So not only is it a cliche, but it does actually it does actually happen. It's, yeah, because it's fun. It's mysterious. And, and that's what you're asking your readers to do when they read crime fiction is to participate and to imagine themselves poring over, you know, things and trying to solve the puzzle and, and, and looking at the clues and, and uh, it's safe to do it well, safe-ish to do it in a library because you're not out there in an alleyway yeah. with a gun. You're here in this. But I'm anybody in- can be here. That's the thing yeah. about this book that you're setting in the library so, is that absolutely anybody can come into the library. So it's mm. a very democratic space which could be useful for this book you're writing together. <laughs> I'm going to tell a story while these guys come up with a plot. Um, <laughs> um, quick, think quickly. Now, I, I, one of my favourite um, stories about libraries, just getting off the subject a little bit, is a story Val McDermott tells and goes to crime fiction. And she tells a story about a particular woman who would go, went to the local librarian and, uh, and said, uh, I, need, I need some crime novels, and, but they've got to be violent. They've got to be really dark. And so... Librarian suggests a few writers and she goes off, came, brings the books back after several weeks going, yeah, that was a fine, but they're not dark enough. I'm talking, I mean, I want really serious torture-type darkness in my crime fiction. So gets given a few more books, comes back, no, 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 I want more. It's got to be darker than that. And eventually after, you know, three or four, four trips back, the woman comes back and says, that's it, no more. I can't read any more. Ah, too much for you. No. So my husband's dead. From now on, it's only romance. Can I just take a swerve away from the the question of the past in crime fiction? Because the other thing that crime fiction does really well is writes the present, I think. And it can feel very vibrant and vital and like things that are happening now. And I think some crime writers write as if, um, you know, write for the moment that their book's going to be published. Mm. How hard is that to do when there might be an unexpected, I don't know, pandemic yeah. or oh, catastrophic flood? Yeah. I got caught on, on um, I can't remember which novel it was, where it's actually set in March 2020 and there's no mention of the pandemic. Because oh, I, I, it was, uh, I think I it's a, your second Edie book. Yeah, yeah. And I there's no mention it. at all of a pandemic. And in the end, apart from the acknowledgements, where I had to tell people this book was finished before yeah. we ever had a pandemic. I apologise that there's no reference to it. But oddly enough, now if you put the pandemic in, more of my editors around the world say, so "Take it out." Yeah, I don't want to take out all the references. <laughs> they say, "Fewer references, the better." People don't want to be reminded about yeah, it. But I mean, there are. Sorry, Chris, uh, just legendary stories, though. There was a very, quite a, a book that 
sold for a huge amount of money at the at the Frankfurt Book Fair, which um, which uh, was called Towers of Silence, and it was had the twin towers on the front, and it was due to come out and on the day the twin towers fell, and wow. that book despite having sold in many translations, just died a death at that moment. Well, and the Scottish uh, crime writer, Christopher Brookmeyer, he wrote a book that came out around the time of yes. um, September 11th. And, and it was quite, I mean, his books are very funny, but one of the subplots was all about how um, terrorists or wankers is, was basically his line on it. And the book just sunk without a trace. It was the wrong time to be being playful about Tourism. Yeah, yeah. So I um my book Trust, which is set in Sydney, I just finished the um the kind of first draft, if you like, and it was a, a, in a sort of editing stage and COVID really hit. You remember it was like March 2020 or something, and it suddenly went from nothing to, to lockdowns. And I was I, I was thinking, well, do I retrofit? COVID into it. My problem was that there was all these references to the bushfires of the, of the previous summer. And I thought, well, how can I be referencing one disaster and, and not the other? So, and do I write it during the pandemic? Because it was the early, it was just starting. How long is this going to go? So I did kind of set it immediately after the pandemic, um, but not saying how it ended or anything like that. You never I'm, quite know if there's a new, yeah. if there's suddenly a new. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm not sure how it went over, but then when I wrote my next book, Treasure and Dirt, which was right in the middle of the pandemic, it wasn't a conscious decision. I just didn't, it just didn't get there. It was almost like maybe it, it felt artificial sort of putting it into the book by then. And I think readers was. You know, you're turning to fiction. You don't. You, it's on the news every night. You don't want to read it in a book. I wonder if it'll come back for that reason. If you get far enough away from it, you know, five, ten years down the track, you know, will people go, oh, well, I'll write about I'll, and I'll put the, the pandemic in, you know. Or because it might be particular aspects of it. I mean, the latest Michael Connolly has some really interesting sort of political conflicts within the NYPD, yeah, yeah. and that's about people who are pro or anti-vaccination and who's wearing yeah. masks and yeah. so it's in there but it sort of plays out in quite an interesting so, way yeah. so the, so the book i'm working on now does have it does have some anti-vaxxers in there and i think it's something that crime writers often do is it's not like a deliberate strategy but yeah. we we often pick up you know michael Connolly is a is a fantastic example of this picking up of the concerns at the moment and you can see that say in australia it, it sort of with the Me Too movement, there's a lot of books about uh, domestic crime, for example, and trying to give victims voices and things like that. So almost without intending to, I think crime fiction authors are often picking up on just just the sort of the currents that are there in society at the moment. But you've just got to, you've got to do it artfully. You've got to sprinkle it because otherwise it looks too deliberate, like you're making a statement, you know. Yes, there's nothing worse than reading a novel and suddenly getting a little lecture. A little lecture, yeah. <laughs> halfway through. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if there are other books that you've read that um, that have interesting libraries in them. I mean, I, I can think of one that my 11-year-old read, which I really loved, Harold Fry, who's an English writer. He's very funny. And he's written a book called Fizzlebert Stump, The Boy Who Ran Away from the Circus to Join the Library, which is also a fantastic <laughs> title. For a novel, and he did grow up in the circus, but 
but he was desperate to have a library card. Any books I, with I libraries? I have been sitting here thinking about libraries and what libraries mean to me and I just wanted to get this story in. It's not on that topic but before we finish because it's it's so, I you know, I, I was thinking back, what have they meant to me? Last night, literally last night, my husband and I were watching this, this gangster show and, um, you know, it's about drug dealers and I, I turned to him and I said, you know you've made it as a drug dealer when you get one of those cash counting machines. Um, and Tim said to me, when did you know you'd made it as an author? And I felt like I had made it. Uh, my first book came out, you know, I was 26 my publisher said, we want to send you to Tamworth. And I'd never been sent anywhere for anything, you know, and it was like a week after it came out and they said, we're going to fly you there and you stay in a hotel and we're going to fly you back and you're going to speak to some people at Tamworth Library. And that's when I felt like, <laughs> I felt like I'd made it. And I said to him, I, I said to my boyfriend at the time, I hope someone comes, you know, because who the hell am I? My book's only been out for a week. No one will have read it. And a hundred people came. And it was because there was nothing else to do <laughs> because it, it was a Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock in Tamworth and because it was a Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock and the, the, the crowd was mostly elderly, at one point I counted while I was talking because my mind's going crazy, there were 10 people asleep, full on asleep. Uh, like I'm talking and I'm racing and racing and I'm going one, two, three. Like one of them was like head hanging back, mouth open. Um, but just, I just wanted to say that because it just popped up to me, uh, what libraries have meant to you. Yeah. The first time I felt like I'd made it was I got sent to Tamworth. So I, I too have been to Tamworth library. Yes. And, but part of an initiative that's often uh, organized by libraries in regional areas. I've also done it at, uh, Wagga. It's the one book, one community thing. So it's like a giant book club that get, extra copies of the books, everyone reads them. And as a crime writer, it's absolutely fantastic because you actually get to say what's in your book because everyone's read it. Normally when we're out, you know, we've got a new book out and we're publicising it, you know, it's spoiler alerts. You don't want to tell what's in the books. But it just goes to show um, just how important libraries are in country towns like Lismore. Yeah. No, and it's, you know, people... You often, or occasionally, you get readers asking you about um, when you do events in libraries whether that writers would think that libraries are somehow bad for writers because you know people are only borrowing your books and 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 the truth of the matter is that if you're a regular library goer, you're the sort of person that when you come to buy a gift for someone, the first thing you think about is a book, you know. So you know that, that fair enough, people. You know, the only time I get upset at library goers is when you you get some really narky sort of person that suddenly decides they want to send you a Facebook post about how that you've made a mistake in your book or whatever, and they, they pay out on you, and the very last line is, I took your book straight back to the library. <laughs> but they're going, hey, you didn't pay for it. Why are you paying out on me? But you can get yeah. nice library-themed fan mail as well. People write to me and say the hold, like the wait for your book at the library is 26 weeks you know, and things like that. Um, I bet your books are also on the fast turnaround the, bit of the, the library. The only library user I didn't like was when I was kept waiting a year and a half for One Flies Over the Cuckoo's Next at UNSW. <laughs> 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 well, 
Well, look, I was hoping that we would end up building a, um, you know, a plot for this shared collaborative novel. But when, you know, if if you don't read a whole lot of crime fiction, you might not know there are two types of crime writers in the world. There are plotters and there are pantsers. And we clearly have a bit of a combination here, do we? Because you say you're not a plotter. Yeah, I'm definitely. I just, yeah, seat of the pants. That oh, type half, half. I've never, and that sounds really, because you always say one or the other, but I start and then I slow to a stop and then I plot the rest. And Chris? I'm more at the pantser end of the spectrum, maybe not as far as Michael. I'm always trying to work out where it goes, but... And I'd love to be a plotter. It just sounds so efficient. Yeah. <laughs> but instead I'll get, I go, oh, no, I've got a better idea. Oh, I'll just have to toss out no, 20,000 words. And, See the plotters yeah. with their nice journals and their little stickers and their highlighted colours and I just have so yeah, much. Yeah, but, envy. I mean, that's the thing, though. When you've got someone like Jeffrey Deaver that writes a 250-page outline, he yeah. knows next Tuesday at 4.30 what he's going to be writing. And that yeah. would bore the pants off me. Yeah, yeah. You know, the idea that... You know, when I come in from, you know, the cabana of cruelty and I and I say to, to Vivian, you would not believe what just happened. <laughs> you know, that is so exciting when you write that way, you know. Yeah, it's just it, so exciting. James and I, because we collaborate, we have to plot absolutely all of it. And we've, we've done it like eight times now. Um, so about the third time we did it, I started to get my courage up in the relationship to be a bit naughty. So we do this whole big plot and then I'd get to, you know, it's my bit and it's two thirds of the way through and I start going, you know, like, and, and then it just goes crazy. And yeah, it always frustrates him and he never sees it coming either. I'm like, we're doing this for a while going right off the rails, but it works. He says it works. So I'll let you do it. Maybe uh-huh. a three-way collaboration is a bit hard to do. Yeah, three-way are always problematic. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I oh, was at that time of the night. Yeah, I walked into that one. Any last final words for our northern New South Wales friends, some of whom may be watching right now about books, libraries, or indeed about the terrible crimes that you are imagining? Uh, look, I, I feel for um, the northern rivers, as I say, I feel it's a, a place that's very close to my heart because I grew up there and my family came from there. Um, and I still have, I think I have 51 first cousins and a lot of them still live up that way, you know, um, up in the mountains, <laughs> no, really in the mountains. No, it's, um, but no, I, um, I look, it's just about libraries, about books. I mean, we're here because you all love books and you love reading and you, whether you visit libraries um, or not, I'm sure, you know, you did with your children and you appreciate what an important job they do. You know, and Lismore doesn't know whether they're going to have to rebuild that library or whether they can, you know, whether they can want to rebuild or need to if they have the money. So every dollar that's raised um, is going to help them. I just want to say to them, we care about you. <laughs> I'm just like I have all this love um, that I want to send because even in a in a in a world that's um, that's enduring so much at the moment, you know, please don't feel unnoticed or uncared about. Um, in what you're going through right now. So I don't have any family from there and I don't have any cousin, mountain cousins or anything like that, but I still, I still, I still care about that and um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry this is happening to you. Yeah, all jokes aside, I think we all feel for, um, for what's happening up there, not just the library, of course, but I think just books are about imagination and books are about empathy and people who love books 
um, can't help but feel, particularly the second time round. So um, we wish you all the best. And, um, and hopefully, you know, sometime soon we'll be able to get up there and see you as well. Yes, because, of course, it's about the tangible and intangible, the, the knowledge, the art, the art gallery, the archives, the libraries, that all of these things need to be rebuilt. Look, um, everybody, thank you so much for coming along. Um, as I said, I'm Kate Evans from Radio National's The Bookshelf, and we've been talking to crime writers Michael Robotham, Chris Hammer and Candace Fox. Please do thank them. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we all did on the day at the State Library. And I should say that we're very grateful to the State Library for allowing us to have this event there. Everybody, including the library, donated their time and all their costs free of charge, which is fantastic. If you'd like to help Lismore Library, because of course the floods have receded, but the chaos is certainly not completely remedied yet and it will be some years before it is so if you'd like to continue to help Lismore Library fill their shelves with books and meet all their needs go to the place where you catch your podcasts and have a look at the notes we have given you there all the information that you need to donate money directly to a special fund thank you again for listening to bad all about crime podcast as I'm sure you know We have a festival every year and plenty of online events as well. Our next festival will be taking place on the 8th, 9th and 10th of September at the State Library. We have some wonderful events and speakers for you to listen to and I very much hope that you join us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.